All right, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 16. My plan, roughly, is we'll be in Samuel this week and next week, and then we'll do a break for Christmas, uh, New Year's. And then after that, much to my wife's chagrin, we're probably going to do a little, have to finish up 2 Samuel before we get back to Ephesians chapter 6. So I'll give you a little bit of a context, not of the entire book of 2 Samuel, but uh, a little bit of context for where we're at in 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're talking about King David, and these are King David's later years. They're his less well-known episodes out of his life. And uh, the summary I'm going to give you is from a particular book called The Teacher's Bible Commentary. I think it's made especially for Bible study groups and, and Sunday school classes. And I've kind of tweaked and tailored it to my own preference, but I need to give credit that really largely this little bit of a summary is from that particular book. So the summary bringing us to where we're at today goes like this. After King David reaches the height of his power, he grievously sins against Bathsheba and then against her husband Uriah. Though his sin is put away by God, Nathan the prophet announces that he and his family will suffer negative consequences. From now on, wherever David turns, he comes face to face with sin in his own home and family. Various members of David's family commit immoral sins, and soon blood flows in his family. In the midst of his chastisement, David's faith in the Lord is strengthened... And God gives David the power to bear all these calamities with meekness and to see them in the right light. David acknowledged and accepted God's chastening and as the primary and just cause for his anguish. One more screen. In chapter 15, we find out how David's estranged son Absalom conspires against his father to be king. Over the course of four years, Absalom crafts a winsome image of himself that culminates in his pronouncement, he has taken over the kingdom. When David learns of the conspiracy, he flees Jerusalem with his household, some friends, and his royal guard. That's where we've been to this point. Now, I've got a few leftover items from last week before we build on that this week. The first leftover item is based on what we discovered in those first four verses of chapter 16 from last week. They read this way, not the verses, but the summary. When David exits exits Jerusalem, he heads for the wilderness east of the Jordan River. On the way, he encounters a man named Ziba. Now, the short story on Ziba is Ziba was previously a servant in uh, the kingdom of King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He's the one that preceded King David. Uh, Saul was the one who tried to kill King David unsuccessfully. And David waited for the Lord's timing before David actually became uh, king. He never conspired against King Saul. But Ziba was a servant. Uh, King Saul was killed. After he was killed, along with his sons, including Jonathan, David's best friend, David wanted to honor a commitment he'd made to his best 
friend Jonathan that he would always treat his family well when he became king. So he wanted to know if there was any survivor in Saul's family, and he summoned Ziba, who used to be a servant of King Saul. And Ziba said, well, the others, there's only one survivor, it's Jonathan's son. He was crippled when he was five years old. And so David summoned Jonathan, or summoned uh, Mephibosheth, and, and told Ziba that I want you and your family to serve as custodians of his entire estate, because everything that belonged to Saul, I'm giving to, to Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's grandson. And I don't know how happy Ziba was with that arrangement, because it seemed like he was essentially kind of a free man and could do what he wanted after Saul died. But he acquiesced and said, whatever you wish, my king, uh, you know, your word is my And so he did that. As David fleeing Jerusalem and he's headed east, Ziba meets him with uh, pretty extensive provisions. And, Z- and King David is left with hun- several thousand individuals, and they didn't have time to pack and plan for an extended time away from Jerusalem. So Ziba shows up with these provisions, David quizzes him, and, and is is showing faithfulness to David, and and David wants to know, well, where's Mephibosheth, your master? And Ziba says, well, that, I mean, essentially I'm improvising a little bit. He's a funny story. Mephibosheth thinks that the kingdom is going to be restored to him. He's not interested in helping you, David. He knows you're on the run. And he thinks, because you're being deposed of the kingdom, he thinks that Israel's going to wrap around him and that he gets to be king again. And so David buys that story. So David says, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth, I'm now giving to you. It now belongs to you. And that's how it ends in those first four verses. Now, what I suggested to you last week that's pretty unanimous is that Ziba is lying. He's lying through his teeth. And we looked at uh, in chapter 19 when Mephibosheth tells his side of the story and it seems very plausible and very reasonable, much more reasonable than Ziba, that in fact he's the one that's telling the truth. So out of that, here's, here's some lessons we learned, but I never really summed them up to my satisfaction. What we learned last week, uh, there are principles for making good judgment that David didn't exercise. He didn't commit to these good principles. And they're principles that we ought to commit to and not follow David in this regard. Number one, to avoid flattery and bribes. That was warned against in Exodus chapter 23. Now, it it doesn't mean that people can't do favorable things. I mean, you probably exchange gifts with different individuals. It's not all flattery. It's not all bribery. Uh, But especially a man in a position like David should be cautious when somebody is bearing gifts like that, and it did shade or alter the judgment he rendered in just a few moments that we've already looked at. That was principle number one. Principle number two is that Deuteronomy says you should hear from a minimum of two or three witnesses. Don't render a verdict based upon what one person told you. Truth is established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And David violated that principle. All he heard was what Ziba told him, 
and he rendered a verdict which was not a good verdict. You can summarize it by a proverb. Proverb chapter, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 reads, The one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him. Any one person can tell you a side of the story, and it sounds really good. Uh, we're learning that in Sunday school. Uh, Paul is being tried over and over, and people are quizzing him, and the Jews keep wanting to kill him. And even this evening, when uh, Festus uh, first arrives and uh, goes down to Jerusalem, a Roman ruler, he goes down. The Jews give, have all these charges, serious charges against Paul, why he should die. And then, and then when they actually go to Caesarea where Paul is, and they're, they're kind of presenting their case, all of a sudden the charges don't sound so serious anymore. Because now you have an opportunity to hear somebody else's side of the story. Now you have the opportunity to bring other witnesses in. You're able to see a better picture. David violates this principle. He violates all three of those principles. And he renders unsound judgment. And so we would do well to listen to, to acquire several witnesses, to avoid flattery and bribery, and to, especially if one person is telling their side of the story, Though it be your best friend, listen to the other side of the story before you frame what you think is the right response. Here's the summary or the conclusion. Our thinking and behavior should chiefly be driven and guided by God's word and not by circumstances and our And if I apply this to David, it's pretty easy to see. David's judgment was vulnerable and compromised because, one, he was physically weak, tired, hungry, thirsty. I mean, if you're a parent, I don't know, I know know Cindy's mom would tell her this. I know Cindy's told our kids this, you know. Don't, don't make a decision when you're, when you're really tired, like sleep on it. Get a good night's sleep. Wake up in the morning. Maybe, maybe you'll have better perspective. Don't make a decision in the heat of the moment based upon the circumstances that seem so pressing right then. Just hold off a little bit. David didn't do that. He's also emotionally vulnerable because it's his son that's conspired against him. It's his son that wants to kill him. So for those reasons, he's very vulnerable, and he makes a very poor decision. It would be much better if he said, well, I know what... Well, I guess he can't know what the proverb says, because Solomon wrote that, and he hadn't written it yet. But he does know what Deuteronomy says about two or three witnesses. And he does know what the Bible says about flattery and bribery. And he throws all that to the wind, and he makes a very poor decision. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 26, look at another decision David made. So you're in 2 Samuel, so it's super easy to go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 26. This is when, this is like 30, probably 35-ish years earlier. No, probably more than, at least 35 years earlier. This is when David is not king. He's been anointed king by Samuel, but King Saul is, Saul is the king, and King Saul is chasing him down to kill him because he knows his family is not going to have a dynasty. The pro, the, uh, Samuel the prophet's already told him as much. He knows that David has been anointed king, and so he's trying to kill David. And so he's hunting David down, 
And in chapter 26 and verse 6, follow along as I read. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, remember that name Abishai, by the way. Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come, come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's the decision he made 35 years ago. 35 years ago, he knew what God required. He knew what God's word said. And he didn't make a decision based upon perfect circumstances. His enemy, who's trying to slay him, is asleep with a spear right next door. And Abishai says, you don't even have to do the dirty work. I'll do it for you. The Lord has given him into your hands. And David says, no, the... God's word says, don't put out your hand against the Lord's anointed. And he wouldn't do it. That was the right decision. The decision he made 35 years later with Ziba was the wrong decision because now he let circumstances and his own emotional state and his own feelings color the verdict that came out of his mouth. We could apply this to ourselves. Uh, You can think about it in, in your own terms, that in modern culture modern, even Christian culture, so many times we make decisions based on circumstances and feelings. I feel right about this. I have peace. I have peace, so it must be the right decision. Well, what does God's Word say, either directly or in principle? Because there's always principles that apply, always. Uh, If I can't articulate the principle or the direct word that, that God reveals in Scripture then I am probably on pretty thin ice to make a decision based on my circumstances and my feelings. The reason why people so often make decisions based upon what seem like perfect coincidental circumstances is because they don't know what God's Word says. Because if you're not taking in God's Word, it can hardly influence the decisions you make. If you're not taking in God's Word, it can hardly influence the way that you think about things or about other people or about your situation. So David fails in that regard. I really didn't tie that together last week, and I regretted it. So that's a little bit of leftover business. One other bit of leftover business, or we're kind of a sidetrack, really. And that is, in order to understand what happens next, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 32. So this is where, hopefully, you've got Jeremiah chapter 32, this handout, because uh, it's, a, it's a long passage. And I want you to be able to follow along. And the picture I have on the screen there is a, is a paradox. If you can build Legos like that, uh, that's an amazing thing. Because a paradoxes are, they seem, it's seemingly contradictory. Like this ought not to be able to go together. It can't possibly both be true. 
How can, you, how can two things that seem so polarized and opposite come together in such a harmonious or good way? And the prophets struggled with this all the time in the Old Testament. Because the prophets in the Old Testament didn't have the vantage point of Christ had come. They didn't have the vantage point of knowing something about his birth, uh, how it actually transpired. They didn't know about the life that he actually lived. They didn't know about how he died on a cross and was buried, and the third day he rose again. They don't have the advantage of all that. They just know what God has told them to prophesy. And some of it, just frankly, doesn't make sense. Because God, God promises all these wonderful things about when Messiah comes. It's going to be the best thing ever. But then they also talk about, in Isaiah especially, about the Messiah in terms of suffering and being betrayed and being beaten and stricken of God and afflicted. And that just doesn't make sense. It's a paradox for the, for the prophets. Uh, Peter refers to this in his first letter when he writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ or Messiah in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets knew what they had to say, they just didn't know how it fit together. It was a mystery to them. And they tried to figure it out the best that they could, but at the end of the day, they just had to scratch their heads and say, I just don't really know. I'm not really sure. Well, that's what Jeremiah is going to struggle with. Um, I've been reading Jeremiah partly because the men's group is doing Run with the Horses by Eugene Peterson, which is a book on, uh, a reflective book on Jeremiah. It's not like a, a commentary, but it's a reflective devotional book on Jeremiah. And it's positively fascinating. It's so good, I kind of jumped from where I was normally reading in my own Bible reading, and I moved to Jeremiah because it's all kind of fresh in my mind. And Jeremiah is fascinating on so many levels, and it fits really well with exactly where we're at in 2 Samuel chapter 16. I think I'll be able to tie it together when we're all said and done. If not, when it comes at the end and I do comments and questions, you can say, well, how did that fit exactly with 2 Samuel 16? And I'll try to connect more directly. So follow along. What we're going to do is we're going to listen to uh, David Suchet read uh, Jeremiah chapter 32. This is from the New International Version. Unfortunately, he didn't read it in every version that he might have. Uh, apparently, he was too busy for that. But he does a fabulous job reading through this chapter. And sense the tension, sense the paradox, the problem that Jeremiah is struggling with. Because Jeremiah is given a task... He executes the task, and then after he executes the task, he goes to God in prayer and says, I don't understand what you just told me to do. I did it. I just don't understand what you told me to do. And the Lord answers him. So follow along, Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah king of Judah had imprisoned him there, saying, 
Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because, as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him seventeen shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deeds of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Maasiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. You performed signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give to their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do, so you brought all this disaster on them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, Sovereign Lord, say to me, Buy the field with silver, and have the transaction witnessed.
Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking this city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down, along with the houses where the people aroused my anger, by burning incense on the roofs to Baal, and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action, so that they will always fear me, and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me, so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land, of which you say, It is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes. All right, that's Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, Jeremiah is, is confined, he's imprisoned initially, for hate speech. That's not just uh, something that can happen in 21st century culture. Uh, he was saying things that weren't appropriate uh, so far as the, the king was concerned in Jerusalem. And so he's confined and imprisoned. 
and, and he's told by the Lord that your cousin's going to come and he's going to offer you a piece of land that has zero value. It's occupied by the Babylonians, and pretty shortly, Babylonians are going to tear down and occupy all of Jerusalem along with all of the rest of Israel that they've already occupied. But I want you to buy that piece of property. Uh, and he does. Jeremiah does that. And then after, Jer- and, and he's told to take those deeds, those official deeds, and put them in a clay jar for preservation. Do you remember any other uh, manuscripts that were put in a clay jar for preservation? Uh, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they lasted like 2,000 years. Well, they were found before 2,000 years, but they're 2,000 years old now. But they were put in, in these clay jars in a dry climate, and they were kept for a long time. So that's what the Lord tells Jeremiah to do, and he, and he does. And then after he does all that, then he goes to the Lord in prayer, and he starts off recognizing God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Oh, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love. You bring punishment. Your eyes are open. You reward. You performed signs and wonders in Egypt. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt. You gave them this land. That's a lot of good news. But then the problem is, they did not obey you. They did not follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. And so you brought judgment. And that's then the tension that gets worked out through the rest of the chapter. Where the Lord basically says, in fact, it gets worse when it talks about Israel's sin on the backside, the second half of that page, halfway through verse 29, all the way through verse 35, the Lord goes over how Israel has consistently persistently from the time of their youth disobeyed and created idols for themselves. So you've got a a God who is all-powerful and wonderfully good, and you've got Israel, which is completely no good. They won't do anything right. They don't cooperate on any level. And so Jeremiah can't make sense of this paradox. What do you do in this situation? It makes sense that the Lord brings judgment, and the says, their, their judgment's coming. Jeremiah's prophesying, uh, you're prophesying sword, famine, and plague. And that's right, that's what's coming. But then the Lord says, but I'm going to surely gather them. I'm going to bring them back. They'll be my people, I'll be their God. I'm going to give them singleness of heart so that they always fear me. Covenant. I'm never going to stop doing good to I'll inspire them. I'm going to rejoice doing good over them uh, with all my heart and soul. And none of this makes sense to Jeremiah. Like the Lord's making all these crazy great promises. And Jeremiah knows that the Lord has already done some crazy powerful things. Of Israel's sin. Lord answered. He doesn't really explain it. He just says both are true. Both are true. And that miracle, in a sense uh, that it pertains specifically to the people of Israel, has yet to be fulfilled. I think you read about that in Romans chapter 11. But let's take that understanding and apply it to where we're at in 2 Samuel. So the next episode in 2 Samuel, this is the last encounter David has with an individual as he flees Jerusalem. It's with a man named Shimei. Shimei is a Benjamite, so he's from the same tribe as King Saul. 
and an episode takes place. Uh, This time you don't have the benefit of David Suchet. Uh, You can just follow along as I read. It begins in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, you remember him, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. That's the episode. Let me draw out a couple of easy observations and then one very powerful one at the end. Number one, the lay of the land is, I would show you a picture, like if I were to give you a background picture of what's taking place, except there's no good background picture that I could find on the internet. Because all the background pictures showing Shimei uh, cursing and throwing stuff at David, it's like, it's like from me to Jonathan. It's, it's not very far away. And the picture I get from verse 13 is David and his men are at a low spot. It's easy to travel down in the valley. And Shimei's up high on a hillside. He's not in arm's length. It's not a just running up there and striking down the man. You have to scramble up that hillside. It would take a little bit of doing. I think Abishai is up for the task. But he's further off than that, and it's easy to throw stuff down because he's up on the hillside. He's throwing stuff down at David and his men. So that's the lay of the land. That's the first thing. Secondly, these accusations and charges that are brought against David, true or false? True or false? The answer is, I'd say false. Everything I'm reading is false. What I read in my own Bible, what I read what other Bible commentators say, they're not true charges. David is not responsible for the deaths of Saul or Saul's sons or Jonathan. Uh, David is not responsible for uh, killing Saul when he had two opportunities to do that. David is not responsible on any level of of any of those charges. David is a sinner. And David kind of responds to that. He recognizes he is a sinner, but not for what he's being charged with by this particular individual. Shimei. You've got Abishai, and Abishai wants to uh, strike the man, cut off his head. Let's just do away with it. He's a dead dog. And David says, what have I to do with you, you sons of, he refers to them in the plural, you sons of Zariah. Uh, These are his sister's sons. 
The other son he's referring to is Joab, that's, that's commander of his army. Joab and Abishai are bloodthirsty. Uh, they are quick to pull the trigger. Abishai uh, is the one that said, let's kill King Saul now. Joab ruthlessly killed two individuals that were associated with Saul's household, completely unbeknownst to David, though David didn't actually do anything uh, by way of disciplining or reprimanding him, though he gives instructions to his son Solomon to take care of that matter after when he assumes the throne. So, Abishai and his brother Joab are very ruthless, and they remind me when David says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? That sounds very similar to an incident in the New Testament where there are two other boys that are pretty hot-tempered. They're two of the apostles. Their names are James and John. And James and John, in the Mark passage, where Jesus refers to them as sons of thunder. And in the Luke passage... I think I've got it written down. It reads this way. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is, uh, go to Jerusalem and be lifted up on a cross and everything that follows, uh, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. These two sons, Joab and Abishai, are quick to pull the trigger. So are James and John. James and John get softened by the grace and the love and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me that the Apostle John, who wrote John's Gospel and then three letters, and Revelation, he's known in church history as the Apostle of Love. Don't tell me people can't change. He went from being known as a son of thunder, and he and his brother wanting to call down fire from heaven and consume some Samaritans, because they didn't receive Jesus properly, to being referred to as as the Apostle of Love, because he writes so much about, let us love A new commandment I give to you, love one another even as Jesus loved us. He was a completely transformed and changed man. But then you've got David's response to all this. David submits to this ill treatment, allowing for the likelihood, parentheses, I think you could say the reality, that this too is part of the prophesied consequence of his own sin. Nathan said, There's going to be bloodshed in your family. There's going to be turmoil in your family based upon your own sin. It's going to to dog you. It's going to follow you. And David recognizes that's the reality I'm living in. And though charges labeled against me or leveled against me by Shimei, they're not true. But David accepts the fact that, you know what? This, too, is part of the consequence, part of the discipline, part of what the Lord prophesied would happen because of my own sin. I need to make an observation here. Recognize there's a difference between paying for sins and suffering consequences or being disciplined for sins. David is not paying for his sins. David could not pay for his sins. David cannot make himself righteous by suffering consequences and somehow he comes out on the other side purged. There's no purgatory in heaven or hell that can purge you of your sins. David can't do it either. 
He cannot pay for his sins. But he does suffer in this life the consequences for his sins. We will probably, at different times in our life, very noticeably suffer consequences for some of the sinful choices we've made. Suffering those consequences is not pain for those sins. It's just suffering a disciplinary consequence that the Lord is going to use to teach us a lesson and draw us closer to where he's at. And there's a difference. That's something that would be worth exploring on a deeper, deeper level, but not now. What I really want to look at is a very interesting remark in verse 12. Uh, commentators uh, are fascinated by what is said in verse 12. And on some level, at the end of the day, uh, partly to Dale Ralph Davis, who is a big help, but other individuals then uh, also clarified this, uh, it's fascinating what is said. So in verse 12, the ESV reads, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, your Bible may say, the Holman Christian Standard says, the Lord will see my affliction. If you've got a new international version, depending on what year it is, it says, the Lord will see my distress. Or he will look upon my misery. If you have a new King James, it says the Lord will look on my affliction. The New American Standard, again, depending on what year, has the Lord will look on my affliction or on my misery. The New Living Translation will see or will read, uh, the Lord will see that I am being wronged. So it all has this idea of he's going to see my misery, he's going to see my affliction, he's going to see that I'm being treated poorly, and the Lord's going to take this, this ill treatment and turn it into something good which is kind of a nice sentiment, but it's very interesting the word that's used here. The word that's translated in the English standard is the word wrong. It's a word that occurs, let me get here to the page, it, it occurs 230 times in the Old Testament, and at least uh, different versions translate it with a different English word a little bit different. The King James is pretty consistent out of the 230 times it's ever used in the Old Testament, it translates it by the same word 220 times. The word, if you translate it directly into English, it's avon. And so, I'm going to guess you probably don't know what that word is. What that word is, is it's sin, guilt, or punishment. That's what that word means. And I'll give you a a resource that says the same thing. A dictionary of biblical languages, and there's some language in Hebrew. This is from a, a scholar that I wouldn't understand a lot of what he says. I reduced it to the English part I do understand. He renders this. The word avon means sin, wickedness, iniquity, in essence, wrongdoing with a focus of liability or guilt for this wrong incurred. So it's the idea of a sin or an iniquity, that's what, how the King James translates it. It translates it iniquity, 220 times. It's an iniquity and a sin and a resulting consequence because of it. Now, it still sounds like we've got a decent translation, the English Standard Version, because it sounds like Shimei is doing something wrong, and my prayer is that God is going to turn it into something good. But that's not the case. What in fact is the case is in Hebrew, it's a first-person singular. It's not Shimei's wrong. It's David's wrong. 
It's David's sin. It's David's guilt. So it ought to read something like this. It may be that the Lord will look on my sin and guilt and for Shimei's cursing today. Shimei is cursing, and he ought not to be. But David's prayer is that the Lord will look on my sin and guilt and repay me with something good. Now, Dale Ralph Davis, if I were to give you the whole explanation that he gives, is fascinating in his own right. Uh, the gist of it is, he would say, all the English translations, and in fact, this just isn't English, this goes back uh, in church history. I, I talked with John about it. It was fascinating what he explained to me. Um, I wish I could explain it like he could, and I really can't. But the gist of it is, he said, he looks up in, in his books, and he's like, Jewish rabbis, when they copied scriptures, when they copied what we call the Old Testament scriptures, when Jewish rabbis did that, they had such high regard for what they were copying, they didn't change a word intentionally. They would never dare to do that, no matter how nonsensical it seemed. They just wouldn't do it. So the Hebrew scriptures traditionally read, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity or my sin, my guilt. That's the word they use. But then a Jewish rabbi, because it's so nonsensical, off to the side, they have an emendation. They, this little note that says, we think, they, we think what was meant to be written is this other word that's very close, like misery or affliction or tears. And, and Dale Ralph Davis unpacks that and says, it's just not true. Uh, several other really scholarly people unpack that and say, no, it's not the Lord's going to look on David's misery and affliction in tears. It's David saying, my prayer is that he looks on my sin and guilt and repays me with good. Is that a paradox? Dude, that's the ultimate paradox that the Lord would look on my sin and guilt and repay me with good. Here's what one statement Dale Ralph Davis makes. Shimei is the man who curses, but David has told us that Yahweh is the God who may reverse the curse. In fact, he has. God rewards our sin and guilt with good. And you read about this in the New Testament on the back side of the cross. Things like Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So might receive spirit through faith. We are cursed under the law. You can't keep the law, and I can't either. You could pick your own ten laws, and you would be guilty. David isn't, his hope isn't that he can find some ten laws to keep so that God repays him with good. David's hope is that he will acknowledge and confess his sin and guilt and God will repay him with good. On that basis, that Christ suffered to take away sin. Romans 5 says the same thing. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gave his people the law to magnify their sin so that in their awareness sin and guilt, they would cry out for God's forgiveness, which only God can provide and secure in the person of himself, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace trumps my sin and guilt. And that's David's prayer all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And it is obscured by our English translations. So the obvious song to sing in light of all this is his mercy is more. Let's everybody stand. We'll sing this song, and then I'll give you a chance for any kind of a response if you have one. Listen to the words of this song, because this is your hope as a sinner. His, his mercy is more.
Questions? Carrie, good. So in Jeremiah 32, um, the way that that verse 12 is maybe restated is it um, verse 42 in Jeremiah, as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I've pro- promised them. Yeah. Like it kind of feels like he's kind of taken the fall for all the calamity that they have chosen. But right? he doesn't say how he's going to resolve that. Right. right. But then he still reminds him of the promise yeah, that yeah. was g- exactly. given prior to all of that. Exactly. There's, he acknowledges their tension. You know, I know this doesn't make sense because I'm promising you this judgment. And I, I'm not going to downplay your sin. I'm not going to soft pedal your sin. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. I'm not going to lower the standard. None of those things are going to be true. But I also promise I'm going to do, I'm going to bring you great prosperity. And I'm going to rejoice over you and make an everlasting covenant with you. But I don't know how. Well, Ezekiel will say later, I'm going to give them, I'm going to take out their stony heart of flesh and sprinkle clean water on them and give them a new heart. So it's a beautiful thing. But Jeremiah, he prays like, I don't get this. I don't understand why you'd have me do this. Because I don't see Israel being any better on the backside of this story than the front side. And the difference isn't going to be another generation is somehow going to be better than the last one. The difference isn't in the uh, generation of Israel. The difference is in God's son who comes. That's the difference. Somebody else? All right, one more week here. One more week here, Lord willing. Then we'll be back at our, own, at our own digs. Although I'm very grateful for faith. They've been very accommodating and gracious. Uh, it would be hard, you know, if somebody wanted to do the same thing with our own building, that would be hard from my end. So they have really put themselves out. Uh, We owe them a debt of thanks and gratitude, and we should certainly extend as much because I'm very accommodating. Pastor Scott Hall's been a terrific host. Uh, I hope he can put up with us one more week. (laughs) You're dismissed.